Welcome back to Absurdist Asylum. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, Brad. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you, Jason? I am fantastic. Uh, excited to do another episode with you. Today we're talking about the 2019 reboot of Hellboy featuring David Harbour. I'm going to be honest with you, I, I really wanted to come in and defend this movie like tooth and nail because the first time I watched it, emphasis on the first time I watched it, boy, was it just like a fun, like hang on and pay attention type roller coaster, right? Like it's, it's visually got a lot of great visuals. Uh, some not as great ones we'll talk about, I'm sure, but it, it really, really wanted you to fly by the seat of your pants. And by the time I was done with it, I was like, that was fun. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, what were your initial thoughts on this one, Brad? I mean, I, I did enjoy the film, uh, especially the visuals. The cinematography was great. Man, they really, really nailed the colors down on this. The Hellboy, like his color looks really great. And just all the scenery that you see in the movie, it all just was shot beautifully. So well done to the production team that filmed it. Yeah, and you know, the thing about the way this movie was shot was that it really looked and felt like a comic book. And there have been some other great movies that have done that and done that really well. Uh, Sin City comes to mind. And just just to see a movie that's really takes the high-budget action film and also does take the time to have the, the shots and the cinematography and the, the blocking really make you feel like you're watching a comic book without having to do the cheesy, like, you know, where they fade in from the dots, you know, where they, cause like the comic books have little dots. <laughs> they fade out without having to like force it down your throat. Like you're watching a comic book. This is a comic book. You know, there wasn't a lot of like in Sin City, how they had the, the panel to panel, like scene changes, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it, it's, it's really great to see that. Well, I mean, We'll talk about how well this movie did, but it's really great to see somebody try and do that. And I think this movie actually did it well. Uh, I did mention that I, I really, I was ready to defend it tooth and nail against all the haters. Cause there are a lot of haters for this movie because I, I did enjoy it so much on the first round. Uh, one thing about this podcast is that you don't just watch a movie once anymore. And I think that's where I found most of my issues with, with, the movie was on the rewatchings and I did watch this movie like almost four or five times. So I've, I've watched it about two for sure. I got about halfway through a third watch and I was like, all right, I don't really have other things I could be doing <laughs> that are more important than watching this three times. The first time I watched it, I was like, wow, that was actually really good. Like, I don't know why everybody hated this so much, you know, but it was late at night and then I went to bed and then I slept on it. And you know, the next day I'm like, I mean, I still like it. Like, I don't, I don't know why people still were shitting all over it. And then it wasn't until about the second watch when I started noticing more. I wouldn't call them glaring holes, but I would see some inconsistencies between whether it's the story or even just some of the lighting, like some lighting changed, like within the same scene. And I have an eye for that stuff kind of now um, as I continue into my film school career and move into actual filmmaking. 
but it was about that that third time when I kind of forced myself to watch it for a third time. I was like, all right, let's just give it one more shot. And then, I, I mean, I, I wanted to defend it too. Uh, and I did to a few people, but I don't know. I mean, it's like the more times you watch it, it's like the worst it gets. So I, I had a similar journey when it comes to the, the amount of times I rewatched this movie because it was so the first time, like I said, joyride. I had a lot of fun. Second time I was like, all right, this is a little, there's something wrong here. And then it was like, and that's when I had to go. I, I actually didn't even finish it watching it the second time I watched it. But the third time I watched it is when I like really went in for the deep dive and I was like looking for things and kind of like trying to spot what I had heard about the things that people say about this movie. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned was the story. And without even going into the plot, all I can say was this movie, it felt like a roller coaster ride because they were just cramming exposition at you for a good portion of the movie and what ex what they weren't directly uh, vocalizing exposition, they were just rushing through scenes. There's a scene where they're literally not only uh, having a vocal exposition of what somebody needs to do in order to, to find a place, but they're also just like showing you a couple of second shots of each location that they have to find in order to find this final place. And it's just like, even the first time I watched it, that part was like, wow, they are trying to get through some, some story here. Yeah. They, they say in uh, filmmaking, you want to show the audience, not tell the audience because you know, it's a visual thing. You're sitting there watching it. You, you don't want to reveal too much of the plot, too much of the story through dialogue. And I think the second time watching it is when I started to really realize like, how much are you trying to cram into this movie? I mean, I understand you only get a, a, an allotted time to tell this story, but you can't tell all of Hellboy in one film. And I only know, like my background of Hellboy was the original Hellboy movie that came out with, that was directed by Guillermo del Toro. That's the only real like information I know. So that's the only backstory that I've got. I know that this movie tried to follow the comics a little bit better, but to say that it did that in a good way, I, I can't say. I'm not an expert on the comics. I've never read them. I actually didn't even know they were books until you told me. So, yeah, you, you touched on a couple of things I'd like, to t I'd like to touch on there with you. The, first of all is the movie, it was far more reminiscent of the comic books than the Del Toro version. The Del Toro version used a lot of like visuals like if you just watched for a frame by frame of the movie you would say like oh that seems in the comics and that seems in the comics but the story itself was actually very divergent from the comics and uh, uh speaking of the del toro version i really think that that is one of the biggest detriments to this movie is that there was not only a version that everybody loved when it first came out because it was the first big screen adaptation of this character that a lot of people loved. Ron Perlman did a fantastic job. Nobody is ever going to, to try and get me to say or convince me otherwise. Uh, although, well, I'll get to it in a second. But the, the fact that Ron Perlman and Guillermo del Toro were 
not only like vocal about the fact that they were trying to accomplish a third movie, but one of the first things that you heard about this movie is that the studio said no to their third movie and said, we're rebooting it instead. And so there's a lot of fanboys out there that poo pooed this movie before it was even, you know, before they saw even a trailer, they saw the, the screenshot of David Harbor in the full costume, which looks amazing. I really provisionally, I prefer the David Harbor version of Hellboy to the Ron Perlman. But I, I do too, actually. I, I think David Harbor's version of Hellboy looks better. So if, just on that aspect, I would go with, you know, point to the new reboot. Yeah. And so the fact that this movie wasn't even, wasn't even birthed yet. It wasn't even out of the gate opening weekend. And there was a large portion of the Hellboy community that was mad at it because it wasn't the Ron Perlman number three. It's kind of hard to keep the movie, you know, afloat when everybody's already shooting it down. Yeah, and I and, and and you know, I think that that may have been one of the factors to the opening weekend lack of success, uh, which I believe I was only twelve million dollars that they made opening weekend, which wasn't a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also, once the movie came out and people started like downplaying it as far as an actual critique of a movie that they saw that prevented people going back the following weekends and it actually getting a chance to make that that money back so the big like i said the biggest detriment to this movie is that it wasn't ron perlman and guillermo del toro yeah i mean when you have a such a big fan base and also they waited such a long time to reboot it that only gave the ron perlman and guillermo del toro version that much more traction like it pushed it up so much higher because people love conflict and when one of the best directors of our time which is Guillermo del Toro he's done so much when he's not getting what he wants there's going to be waves he's got a fan base and so does Ron Perlman so when the, they don't get what they want to do yeah the fans are going to back them 100% so I actually didn't even watch the trailer for this movie because I said okay I want to give this movie a full shot. I don't want to watch the trailer. I don't want to watch anything. I just want to go and watch the movie to see how the filmmakers want you to appreciate the movie. Cause I think these days trailers are too much now give away too much information. So I gave it like it's raw potential and I liked it the first time. Like I said, yeah, that's something that I actually uh, give you a lot of credit for is refusing to watch the trailers because I, I eat up trailers like even if I have no interest in a movie, I'll watch it. Like I know that I'm there's no way I'm going to go see this movie in the theaters if at all. And I'll still I'll still watch a trailer to just kind of I don't know. Maybe it's just my ADD. I can only take in like you know three minute stories. But <laughs> uh, so the the thing about this movie is that you know we mentioned the fact that it did really harken back to the actual comic books. Like it, you you were right. It it played in comic book three different comic book storylines all into the same movie, which really speaks to the uh, the some of the criticisms of this movie, saying that it did just feel like it was uh, kind of a mishmash. You know, had too many characters. Almost tried to earn something that it didn't have. Yeah, when you do too much in a movie, like. 
I, I know they say, you know, action, 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 action. It's an action movie. It's also kind of a comedy too. It's a comic book. You know, comic books, there's so much action. You just got to jam pack it full of action. But when you do that too much, you lose the audience. And they're like, what the fuck are we watching? For people like me who never don't know anything about the comics other than, you know, the last movie, I think I maybe followed it probably better because I didn't have that backstory. But when when you are like a big fan of Hellboy and you watch the movie and as I guess three different storylines, I'm sure they were confused as shit. Like what the fuck are they trying to do here? Yeah. It, it, it's almost as if they saw uh, Avengers infinity war and they saw the, just like multitudes of characters and you know, the really rushed storytelling to kind of get to the snap. Uh, but they they had no you know eighteen movies of prequels to to set it up. They almost it, they they wanted to like I said something they didn't earn. Yeah, I think trying to go up with a movie like Avengers Endgame because I think they were released not too far apart from each other if I remember correctly. It was a it was a few months, but it was a few yeah. months. Yeah, I mean people were still rewatching that movie over and over and over. So yeah, it's still in theaters right now and it's, and it's seven months after the fact. Yeah. So when that movie is, did so well with superheroes in that genre, it's kind of hard to to even really give this one a shot, just even based on the success of all the Marvel movies. Um, I I still want to say that it's not that bad in, in my opinion, but I mean, with my background, you know, in filmmaking and me understanding how hard movie it is to make movies, I'm a little bit more lenient on movies that don't do as well because I just have most of the knowledge of what goes into making a movie. So I understand most of the struggles, but not all. I, I wonder, I wish I would have looked this up, but I wonder if they had enough budget because I felt like they did. I just think they just rushed everything too much. Which yeah. Which is probably the biggest downfall. This movie uh, was not struggling for money in any sense of the term. I believe, uh, gosh, I'm going to misquote it, but I believe the figure that was quoted to me was 160 budget. Oh, no, $50 million. And it made $40.8 million in the box office. So ultimately unsuccessful. But $50 million is not a small chunk of change. And while it's no, you know, hundred and some odd million uh, Avengers Endgame, uh, it's so funny how we keep coming back to the Marvel movies. It just every episode. A, there's such a good, um, like, wide audience marker for you know, like goalpost for when you know you want to define success or not success when it, especially when it comes to money. But the, especially with superhero movies, yeah, and, and the superhero movies. But the idea that. Uh, you know, you can't do what you want with $50 million. They had extensive CGI throughout this movie. They sure did. Amazing prosthetics and practical effects. Like they, this movie was not hurting for money. They may have even, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is the right way to say this, but like had too much to roll with. You know what I mean? Like, it, Oh, it, so it, I, it, if they were forced to do more practical effects, kind of like the Gel Toro CGI, uh, Gel Toro, del toro ron perlman one where like the cgi was really bad but the practical effects were really good yeah uh granted that was 15 years ago the first one there was 
points in this movie where the CGI was bad but good, so it like deliberately felt campy. Yeah, deliberately felt like they were going for a cheesy, like I said, almost comic book style effect where it's like things don't look quite real or this, that, and the other, and and that's okay. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. It it feels deliberate at points of this movie, but there's other points of this movie where they take themselves super seriously. And actually, it comes up in the uh, development side of this movie when they were making it. Uh, there were some different ideas kind of pulling the, sp- the strings. Did you hear about this at all? No, I didn't. Like I said, I, I tried to give it that raw potential and give it a, giving a fighting chance, so I didn't look at anything. Yeah, um, apparently, well, the the cinematographer of this movie was fired, which was a huge, like, controversial uh, event in this movie. It was fi- he was fired halfway through. Oh, I actually did hear about that at the school. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, and, I told him like I don't want to know anymore. Else, like, okay, he's fired. <laughs> That's it. Don't tell me anymore. And then the, there was a kind of like a cast between the the director and I forget, I want to say it was the new cinematographer. The director would tell them one thing and then the other guy would whisper, uh, you know, like actually don't play that scene this way, play it this way. And it did come across on screen to where you, you find these moments that are deliberately just like cheesy and over the top. The giant fight comes to mind. Yeah. Is it, incredibly cartoonish but it it looks great at the same time then there's other parts where it's just like this movie is it gets like serious and it tries to get dark mila jovovich's character the uh nimue the blood queen like i'm not sure who told her what in that movie but she there's times where she's trying to be like very you know serious and and in control and then there's times in the movie where she's like I don't know, like just kind of like a jokey high schooler. It seemed like a yeah. Her character was kind of all over the place. I I, I noticed on my second watch through that they gave the backstory to set up the film, which is understandable. Uh, and she was just, I want all the power. The power is mine. And then when she comes back, spoiler, she comes back. Yeah, she's just all over the place. Like she wants to be this queen, but she's in this new time era, and. I just didn't really quite understand somebody that's that powerful didn't really do anything until the end. Yeah. And the, the movie, it it almost doesn't know where the end of it is. Like I'm sure that they had it all written out for this climactic scene. Hellboy, you know, takes up his crown, blah, blah, blah. It's almost like they, they really kind of stumbled getting there. Like they have this whole, you know, introduction where he fights his friend in Mexico and then he goes back home and he has this little heart to heart with his dad. And then his dad sends him on this mission where ends up getting him like almost killed by these giant hunters who want him dead as well. And he goes back to, uh, then he fights the giants. And it's like, it's like they, they have so many different plots that they really kind of like we spoke before had to rush to the end once they figured out where they were going with it. They probably wrote the beginning and the ending very well had those well concreted ready to go and then like all right so how the hell are we going to get there from the beginning to the end and then they just fill in the middle like well here's all the three stories we're trying to tell just jam it in there and we'll see what happens i mean granted there's more planning and pre-production in that but yeah i i just think it was rushed um i don't i don't really know what else to say about the middle like 
the beginning is great and the ending I thought was good. But like I said, her her the Blood Queen's character just didn't really make that sense to me. Like she did not seem like this all powerful evil being that Hellboy needs to take down. The only thing that was like I think a few times they were like, she's going to bring the end of the world. And I was like, but I thought, I thought Hellboy was going to bring the end of the world. Who the fuck is bringing the end of the world here? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. There are a lot of people in this movie that claim to know how the end of the world is going to come around, but have absolutely, like, no information to share with the rest of us. They're like, uh, you know, a couple groups claim that Hellboy is going to bring the end of the world, and then Hellboy's group claims that Nimue is going to bring about the end of the world. But nobody like really puts the puzzle pieces together except for the audience because we see that Nimue is like trying to make Hellboy her king and which we assume is like once that happens is shit's gonna hit the fan. But yeah, she the character of Nimue felt really underpowered for a large portion of the movie. And then yeah. at the end of the movie they were rushing towards the end so fast that when they did show her powers of like bringing out demons from hell and inducing this darkness, uh, this dark plague upon the world, it just didn't hit. Like you weren't like, Oh no, she's got her powers and she's, she's killing everybody. It's like, well, this is going to be over soon because I know that, you know, like at this point, Hellboy's already almost basically made his decision to not help her. And so it's like, you really, there's no stakes in it at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I understand the conflict of like why they said Hellboy is going to be bring the end of the world. And then they said, why the blood queen's going to bring the end of the world. I get it. There's conflict that you got to build off of that, but I don't know, man, the, even toward the middle, like she's being sewn back together. You're like, I thought you're like this big old powerful being like can't you do anything more than have some weird pig dude oh the pig dude <laughs> I, that's one character i don't really understand i get like he was trying to help the blood queen get back to her full strength because they and the promise was so he would get to live as a child again or some shit like that um so essentially there's a scene midway through the movie where hellboy finds out that a fairy has replaced their friend's baby. That's what it was. Baby. And uh, the fairies replace the baby with this, oh gosh, I want to call him like Gorgoroth or something like that. Uh, this essentially pig man monster. Uh, and, it, and it, say again? I just said man bear pig. Oh, the man bear pig, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he the the fairies replace him with this like shape-shifting pig and so i think he was like expecting him to live out his life as a baby except for uh the fact that hellboy was friends with this family and he outed him and shamed him and then he the pig man goes to baba yaga which we haven't even touched on yet and <laughs> and she sends him on this path to resurrect nimue the blood queen because he can restore his the pig man's full power and the pig man can then kill Hellboy. <laughs> which is like that's the, that's the revenge is he was robbed of a childhood essentially. Yeah. So I mean oh I'm robbed of a childhood. I'm gonna help bring the end of the worth or bring the end of the world now and try to kill Hellboy, the guy who robbed my childhood. Like 
is that really enough? I don't think I don't think there was enough there. Well, yeah, I, it's the old trope. Uh, it's Gurugash, G U G R U A G A C H, is this this uh, like human boar creature? But it, it goes back to the old like easy trope is, is bad guys are bad because they are bad guys. Like it's just. Uh, I I I know a little bit about the comics, and I know the like fairy baby switching scene with the pig little pig creature is like directly from the comics. Uh, so that explains like where they got the idea to use this pig creature because it is kind of a weird like turn. Like you think of fairies, you don't think of a little like a boar creature, but uh, the idea the idea did come directly from the comics. Huh. Okay. I guess it makes more sense. I thought they kind of just threw that in there, but if that came from the comics, then I get them trying to stick as much as they can to it. Cause not all, not all comics are great. Not every single thing about each issue with a comic is great. There's plot holes in the comics too. So I just wish they would have maybe even add something, even if you're trying to stick to the comics as much as possible, add a little bit more tension there or fulfill that revenge story a little bit more yeah and and it kind of brings up one of the things that a lot of people like would say is one of the biggest issues of this movie is that it tried packing in way too many characters like you you go all the way from king arthur and merlin to hellboy and you know his friends uh alice and her parents and to the the pig monster and like the blood queen and her sisters. It's like, it, it gets to the point where they pack so many characters in that it's really hard to care about any of them. There's even a scene where they pack so many characters in, you couldn't even figure out what the hell's really going on. Where toward the end or at the end, at the, when all the creatures come out from hell or whatever. And it's like, who the fuck are all these things? Yeah. They, it's really like they just needed an excuse some artist needed an excuse to like unleash his hidden folder of these like monster characters that he's been making for years and years and years. I would say it's probably like, all right, here we got a really cool scene, but we don't know how we're going to get to it. So let's just like say she's going to bring the end of the earth and the end of the earth is all these characters come out and then release the, you know, the monster mash of characters. Yeah. Monster really cool though. Mash is a good word for it. Uh, Yeah. It's almost like, Almost like they had like uh, Dark Souls characters come out and and just start wrecking normal people. Uh, there was a lot of carnage though during that scene. You did get to see the, the one thing that I will applaud them is there is a lot of blood and gore in this movie, and I'm glad they did not shy away from it. Yeah, and and one thing that a lot of people did say was an issue with this movie is that they wasted their R rating on saying fuck a few times and all the gore that they had in this movie. Like the opening scene of this movie is a crow pecking out someone's eyeball and this nasty white pus oozes out. It, 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 I really, I feel like the gore that they had in this movie was very appropriate in times. And then over the top at others, like there's, there's times like the giant scene, like he's, you know, almost comedically chopping up and fighting these giants and there's blood splatter and he punches out one of their eyes and stuff. But yeah, then there's other stuff where 
you know, they're like just like eviscerating people on screen for no other reason than that's the thing to do at the end of the world. Like that's what demons are going to do is eviscerate people. No, it's going to murder everybody in sight. And they do. There's a lot of people that get smashed or torn apart and actually looked really good. I was like, oh, wow, this looks really cool. I was I didn't really understand later until a couple more watches that I was like, okay, but like, now what? <laughs> just going to start killing everybody? Like, what's the end game here? And so, you know, we say that that's what demons will do at the end of the world. And, they, and that's what they do in this movie. And I watched an interview with Mila Jovovich where she's, I, I, she's doing it deliberately, but she's like pleading the, the side of the blood queen where she's like, Oh, she just wants the monsters and the people to get along and like live all together. And everything's going to be good when that happens. And we should just listen to the blood queen. And it's like the, you know, when you say like when immediately the demons come out of hell or the monsters come out of hiding or whatever it is, and they just start like, literally there's a scene where the monster takes the dude upside down, grabs him with the hand that is where his cock should be, and then his <laughs> regular hands, and he like splits him down the middle, and blood and guts come shooting at the screen. Like, okay, if that's, if that's, if that's what's going to happen when the monster's coming out, like, that's how you know she's a bad guy that just like is talking shit to try and make, you know, to maybe try and get some diplomacy or something out of it saying, no, I just, we should just, the monsters shouldn't have to live in the dark anymore. The mm. monsters have rights too, equal, equal rights for all monsters. So one of the monsters in this movie that is actually a direct uh, parallel to Ant-Man and the Wasp was Baba Yaga. Um, she's uh, basically just like a witch that eats children in uh the hellboy movie and they do refer to her as a witch in the ant-man and the wasp movie when the the ghost character like appears mm. disappears out of nowhere but uh there's a scene where hellboy gets taken to baba yaga's lair where he's apparently banished her from a previous fight and not only is this some of the best like practical effects in the movie but it's also some of the best just like not over the top gore because the character herself is just like this grotesque woman with like drooping skin and a missing eye, but she's also eating like prepared a feast for her and Hellboy. That's just human children. And then he looks in a room and he can see like human bodies dangling from meat hooks and stuff. And it's like, that's honestly one of the better scenes in the movie, just for the fact that, it really not only sold us a story about the two characters and why we should care about the two characters interaction, but also gave us a clear bad guy. And she's actually the one, like we mentioned earlier, who set this whole thing in motion, set the pig man to go find blood queen. And Oh gosh, I forget where I go, but the practical effects, that's what, that's where I was going. Is yeah. The vast majority of this scene is all prosthesis and there's like a little bit of CGI right around the mouth, which that's, that's another thing this movie did really well was blend practical effects and CGI. The pig man himself, like the vast majority of him is in a, you know, full bodysuit costume that has a full like, like character headpiece 
and then there's scenes where he's talking really fast that they CGI over the mouth, and it actually doesn't look half bad. It looks really good, in my opinion. I didn't really catch it. I, I think he was actually a really well-built character, the physical build and the way he moves and the way he talks. I thought that was actually really well yeah, done. The way, the way he looks on screen comes across as it could be something real because, in fact, there is a real person inside a suit that looks like this pig monster. And then there are there are some scenes where he gets going real fast where they focus on the face that you can tell it's CGI of the mouth moving. But all around it's real, but it's not a bad blend. Uh, that's one of the it's one of the better things in this movie as far as like CGI blends. You can you can really create a character doing that. And that's really hard to do. That blending those two types of um effects are not easy. I mean most of the time you do the practical effects and you blend, you do that first, and then you blend the CGI over. And sometimes doing it that way causes way more problems and headaches than as if you would have just done it with the practical effects. So yeah, I would definitely applaud them for being able to combine the two almost seamlessly. I don't think anyone's ever done it seamlessly. Yeah. I think you kind of get to that uncanny Valley type thing where it's like something so real, it looks fake. You you get a lot of, uh, a lot of that in certain movies. Like, We've mentioned this before, but when they reverse age people in the Marvel movies, like, oh, yes, it looks exactly like a young Robert Downey Jr. or a young Michael Douglas, but it's also you can tell it's not real because it just looks too good and it's too polished, too. Like, I, I think that's kind of something that uh, people, graphic artists, are going to struggle with for a long, long time until we kind of get over that hump is the uncanny valley where something looks so real that it's not like it, it, our mind tells us there's something wrong with it. Yeah. Besides the eyes and the mouth, like the face is the hardest thing to match with CGI wise. There's a scene with uh, Ian McShane who plays uh, a <laughs> boy's father. Yeah. But that's another weird thing that I had about this movie too, is what is Hellboy's like confidant, the girl, Alice the psychic. Alice the psychic. So the way that she speaks to spirits yeah. is is not any way that I've ever seen it done. She essentially like throws up yeah. this like weird, I don't even know what the hell you call it, like some kind of weird worm thing. And at the end of like the where the head would be is the person you're talking to. And she did it once in the in the in the movie, and I was like, okay, that that's weird, but you know, it didn't really off put me. But the second time she did it was when Hellboy's father dies, and so just before Hellboy's like trying to decide, like, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna like be the king, or am I gonna like take her out? What am I gonna do? Uh, she throws up her Hellboy's father, and uh, man, the floating head part just kind of. It looks like they CGI just his face and not anything else, and then put that on more CGI. And I think building and building and building on CGI of that effect is what made it look so weird. But as you watch it, like you could tell, like they filmed him, his head like not moving whatsoever. But then the character moves, so now they got to try to track <laughs> the face on top of the body and make it move like seamlessly. And it's just like 
it looks like somebody cut his face off and slapped it on something completely different. And it, it, to me, I, I obviously like saw that and I was like, that's not the greatest CGI, but I get where they were trying to go. The fact that that's the way that they talk to dead spirits in this world is weird. And I don't know if that's a comic thing, but I mean, Hey, more power to you, you know, don't reinvent the wheel, you know, make something completely different. And they did. Yeah. So that effect happens twice in the movie and is easily hands down the most egregiously bad use of CGI. I don't know why. Cause like you said, it's like they slapped a face on, like they slapped, they took a face, rendered it in the computer and then slapped it on another CGI like floating torso attached to a worm coming out of this spiritual medium's mouth. Uh, and I mean, you, you want to talk about complaints about the movie, bring that up all day long. I will not argue with you. <laughs> like the first one's not so bad. Just because no, the first one almost works. The character. Yeah. The character herself has an almost like, like when she's alive, has an almost like ethereal ghost type thing about her. And so when she's actually a ghost and she's talking to these characters, sure. Like it looks weird. I'll give you that. It's not the weirdest thing in the world that I've ever seen CGI, but when it's Ian McShane and you've seen this character in multiple movies before, you know what this guy Deadwood is. is like his like, most famous role. Yeah. You, you, you know, this guy and not, you know, Aside from the fact that this is the only character that plays a part in like Hellboy's character arc, which is minuscule to say the least. Yep. The, the the fact that like he's been the second most character on screen in this movie, then then you know him from all these other movies. Just seeing his face like slapped on this like skinny corpse of a ectoplasm worm or whatever the fuck you want to call it just mm -hmm. it really ruins the like heavy moment that they try and build off of this dead person i, I think another thing too is so i I've, I've seen a lot of movies that have and they call that the floating head when it doesn't work they call that the floating head so what i don't understand is if you've already got the actor you know dressed up ready to go and you know deliver the lines why only record the face why would you not you know basically make it as practical as you possibly can a it's cheaper and it looks better than just doing cgi because cgi is so expensive so why only do the face like were they running out of time and they're like we only have time to do the face did ian mcshane only have like two hours and he's like let's only do the face because i don't have enough time like, I don't know. I, it could have been a pickup shot they added. I'm not sure. But if you're going to put the time into doing the face, go a little bit farther and at least do, like, from the torso up. You can actually mask from the torso down pretty easily. But when you're dealing with something as complicated as the face and trying to slap that on something, go all the way and actually do more in that moment. I I just want to know, like, the reactions of, like, the CGI team, like putting it together and right before they're about to like show the director what they've got. And they're like, Oh man, this is not going to go well. 
all right, well, let's, let's show the director and see what he thinks. And I want to know what the director said. Was he like, oh, yeah, I love it. Or was he like, wow, that looks like shit, but we don't have time to fix it. Yeah, it's like they had the they had you know Academy Award winning practical effects artists on set and he could have easily like done up Ian McShane's like top half of the torso with just some, yeah, just some like some paint and then CGI faded that into what they did, but instead they decided to go full on just like slap a green, uh, you know, his face into a green screen. It's like face off. <laughs> they just did a face transplant. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one of the things that this movie did that actually pissed a lot of people off was it had some end credit scenes that teased sequels. And it actually even mentioned a sequel straight up when, they're talking about the blood queen and they said, what do we do with her? And she says, let's make sure she doesn't come back for the sequel. Well, congratulations <laughs> down for a sequel because it was just like not, well, it didn't even make its money back. Like you expect to make at least a bit of a profit, but didn't make its money back. If you don't even make your money back, there's no chance in hell that's getting a sequel, maybe another reboot, but not a sequel. They'll definitely change it up if they ever reboot it again. I mean, come on. They've rebooted, you know, the Joker and Batman so many times and all the other characters. Fuck it. Why not give Hellboy a, a third chance in the sunlight? Maybe Guillermo del Toro will get a chance and actually be able to do the third movie. Yeah, and it's a real shame because, like I said, I, I prefer no shit to Ron Perlman, but I prefer David Harbour's Hellboy. It's... It to me, it doesn't have the like goofy, uh, suave tone that Ron Perlman had. But I think the fact that this character was kind of stumbling through the whole movie and was like just there, he like he didn't know why he was there through a lot of the movie, and was stumbling through, just kind of finding out who he is, which you know, as thin as the character arc was there, there was a bit of a character arc there. So I think that the idea that we learn who this guy is along with him really did set up the idea of, of maybe like seeing more of it in a sequel. I actually do like the fact that he stumbled through it because if somebody said, Hey Brad, you're uh, you're also going to be a King of hell and you're going to bring the end of the world. Don't fuck it up. Like, I'm not going to know what the hell I need to do to fix it. Like, so I, of course I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to stumble through trying to figure out what the hell I'm supposed to do. And that's what David Harbour's character brought. And I actually really like that. But another reason I really like David Harbour's character is he looks more like a character from hell. I think, I think Ron Perlman's character was almost too clean. Like there weren't a lot of scars on him and he looked you know, his chest plate and everything looked like really painted on. I, I think the visual effects or the, sorry, the practical effects for David Harbour's character just looked so much better. I, I don't know if it was because they had, uh, you know, more talented artists on set or what, but it looked more authentic to me to, for a character that came from hell, you know, he's got scars all over his face. His eyes are different. It looks like at some point there's like a weird bulge coming out of one of, the, one of his eye sockets like it looks more demonic to me than Ron Perlman's character. 
Yeah, with the with the Ron Perlman version, it's like they banked on the fact that he himself had a big jaw, and yeah, the character in the comics, like he, you know, it's one of his defining features is the horns and the big jaw. The David Harbor version, like while you could tell there was obviously prosthesis. Uh, the character had just like a huge jaw and the shape of his face I thought was a little bit weird. It looked more triangular than you would see. Yeah. But I think that may have just been a choice by the director. So you get the full, like it doesn't look like he has a fat jaw when you see him from the side, you just get the full like jaw effect, no matter what angle you look at him from. I think they tried to make it more proportional to his body. Because uh, Ron Perlman is a much bigger person than David Harbour. Yeah. Even and, with David Harbour working out for months on end to get huge, he, he did get very big. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, you're going to talk about David Harbour's body. Watch Stranger Things and then watch Hellboy. Like, the dude got jacked for this movie. They, yeah, yeah. they had a workout emphasis that, like, they didn't want him to be, like, ripped like the amber crombie model ripped they wanted him to be like if this dude punches you in the face it's gonna hurt type ripped where they did a lot of emphasis on the you know chest and arms and and just to make this dude look like he could punch you straight to hell yeah and he probably could (laughs) yeah i mean there there's no doubt that this guy was jacked and just to see like i said to see him and this versus Stranger Things, where in Stranger Things, he's a, a pretty hefty guy. I don't know if you, you've watched the show. I don't think we've talked about it on our show before. But he he does kind of give off the, like, well, the Midwest dad type vibe. Yeah, he's definitely got, you know, he's more obese in that movie. Maybe not obese. He's just, he's just a more fluffier guy in that movie. He's not. He's a, a lone sheriff trying to protect the city, and he's also lonely, so he drinks a lot of beer and eats a lot of shitty food. Yeah, he's not going to look very great. But in this movie, you got Hellboy jacked as shit, and he holds his own against all the characters. Uh, even the big-ass, what, like 40, 50-foot giants? Yeah, and and it's so funny that we keep coming back to the the giants because I really think that – scene where he's fighting the giants was like the tone that the movie should have stuck with like sure get to the end and then get to where things get dark but in between stick with the like super stylized laughing at your own you know laughing at your own jokes type vibe and i wanted to mention this because it's my favorite joke in the whole movie but and it's not even really a joke, which maybe just just speaks to how my brain works. But he <laughs> is talking with his dad before his dad sends him to go help fight these giants. And he says, the Osiris Club has a giant problem that they need your help with. And he says, oh, yeah? What's the problem? His dad goes, giants. And Hellboy just looks at him and goes, ha! <laughs> it's, it's so ridiculous, but it makes me – that's like that's like the – the scene in Napoleon Dynamite where the school bus drives by the farmer as he's shooting the cow, like (laughs) how bad the rest of the movie, bad or good the rest of the movie around it is, that scene will always make me laugh out loud. Yeah, and another thing I think that made, in my opinion, uh, David Harbour's Hellboy better is the dialogue. The the characters in the uh, the comics – 
they're not, I mean, they're thought out, but the dialogue is, it's funny. It's comics. You're supposed to have a good time reading the comics and it's just comic dialogue is so much different than the movie dialogue between the original Hellboy and this Hellboy. And there's a lot of like puns and there's a lot of jokes. His character is more using his humor to hide the fact like that. That's how he's dealing with the situation is not only am I going to try to figure out what the hell's going on, but I'm going to throw some humor in this. And I think that's what made his character so much better than Ron Perlman's because I was told like Hellboy is kind of a funny dude, but in the Ron Perlman version, you don't really get that. He has a couple of one liners here and there, but David Harbour's character is just more of like a, fuck it. We're just going to see what happens. And you know, that's his kind of motive throughout the whole movie. And I loved it. I think that made it so much better. Yeah. So I, I will agree with you. This movie, I think does have a more similar tone to the comics than the Guillermo del Toro version does, uh, especially when it comes to its humor, because the the character Hellboy, it, he he does have like the one liners like Ron Perlman pulled off, but they're not always great as <laughs> the David Harbor one pulled off. Like some of the things he says in the David Harbor version is not the best joke like oh is, is this my uber is he's passing out and he sees like a van rolling up on him or he's you know his dad gives him his like famous gun uh and i I'm, my mind is blanking as to what the name of the gun is but it's the revolver that you see all the hell, hellboy with and he goes you know some dads give give their kids legos and it's like it 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 doesn't have to be like super witty but if you think about the things he says like yeah, it's like my dad just gave me a like a giant ass handgun, or you know he's you know he sees an unknown car come up. I think I think the uh, the idea that he he tries to make jokes but they don't always land like super well is is part of that character. I wonder how much of the dialogue was like scripted, or did they let David Harbor go kind of go off the cuff and. I, I would think maybe some of those moments he came up with on his own, just him playing Hellboy as, you know, the, the character and seeing what he comes up with. Kind of like how Chris Pratt does a lot of improv and Will Ferrell does a lot of improv. I wonder how much of David's, you know, improv, if any, was used. I, I would say, I'd say a good part of it, maybe 30% of his dialogue, especially the jokes. I mean, then again, somebody could have easily wrote those, but when you see David Harbour in Stranger Things and you see him in these other smaller roles, the way that he portrays uh, Hellboy is basically who David Harbour is. He's that funny, lovable guy, but in this role, he's just a big-ass red fighting machine, monster-killing machine. He's a wrecking machine! That's that's Rocky, but... <laughs> so, I, I, I do agree with you. I think that the... David Harbour version of this character comes across as somebody who is trying to fit in. Whereas the Ron Perlman character is like further down and possibly in Hellboy's development where he doesn't care about fitting in anymore. Um, although he does kind of have those like little back and forth laments throughout the, the Ron Perlman version. I think David Harbour's character really is like, 
trying to not be the monster that everybody sees him as. Whereas the Ron Perlman character is just is over the fact that everybody sees him as a monster. Yeah. I couldn't give a, couldn't give a shit about what people think. You know what? And this is an interesting thing I just thought of maybe like Hellboy, the original one with uh, Ron Perlman, maybe that's like an older, wiser Hellboy. Like maybe he's already been through this shit been through on so many adventures and realizes I don't really care what people think about me but maybe David Harbour is you know in this timeline of where this begins and I don't know based on the comics maybe this is all new to him like he's done you know he's fought crime and he's helped out the civilians of the earth but he's never has he fought anything big like like this before maybe him trying to figure it out if this is more of like a younger version of Hellboy I don't know in the timeline but yeah, and it goes back to to we kind of spoke on this character does have like a really light arch to make him grow a little bit, and it does culminate in the like weird ass ghost uh, version of his dad. <laughs> but it, it it really I don't know. It's been so long since I watched the Ron Perlman ones that I can't really think of what his arc was. But I do think yeah, this character while being like over 40 some odd years old because well actually probably closer to like 60 some odd at this point because he was born at the end of world war ii he they do mention that he ages a lot younger well no nope that's the other that's the that's the rod perlman version where they say he ages in reverse dog years uh because <laughs> he's gonna be around for forever so it's like think every seven years is one year but i i do think that this was a younger version and it's funny they showed like a younger version of this character in the movie uh in the scene where he he gets the baby back from the fairies and it's so weird to see that his face looks so different uh in that scene as opposed to the what they show during the main portion of the movie to think that a character would like look so different but then again I don't know if you remember the like little kid scene in the Ron Perlman version where it's little kid Hellboy like listening. It's uh, the Golden Army, and it's the little kid Hellboy listening to his dad tell him a tale about the Golden Army. And the kid's like ten, but he's got giant horns coming out of his like yeah, and yeah. It's it's. I, I guess the question is, how do you age a demon? Yeah, I, I think the reason they probably just made his face look a little different in the earlier version was just to show that you know, this is an earlier version. This is, you know, 10, 15 years. Cause what is, what is Alice? She's like 20 something, maybe I don't 24. Think it, but yeah, I would say 20 ish is probably good. 20 years, you know, in, in 20 years, he's been through fights. He's, you know, he's definitely like a, obtained the scars that he has now in the more movie version of Hellboy. So I, I get why they did that, but Maybe they forgot, oh, shit, we said this guy doesn't age very well. Damn it. Well, fuck it, who cares? So I don't think that we have touched on Alice at all. And I think Alice, a little bit. I think Alice, well, yeah, just a, a little bit. But I think Alice is one of the characters that, like, feels so jam-packed into the movie that it's like, I understand why she's there because she's the character who has the ability to talk to the dead, which is the little like ectoplasm worm monster that we're talking about. But she appears out of nowhere from the giant fight. And she says that 
the reason she knew Hellboy was there is because the giants were eating these dead people and the dead people were telling her that what's going on. Uh, well, the, the people weren't dead before the giants started eating them. That's probably important to, important to touch. <laughs> but they, so she uh, has Hellboy, let's see, and then they go, go on this adventure together and she gets this magic power. She just starts like punching the spirits out of, I think they were zombies. And there's a lot of things in this movie that you just kind of have to believe because people tell you. And this is one of them where she just like suddenly gains this ability to start punching the spirits out of zombies. And the character even says, where did you learn how to do that? And she says, well, when I was adopted by the fairies, uh, I, I could do a lot of weird shit afterwards. It's, that's one of the big issues with this movie is like because there's so much exposition, you just have to believe things because people tell you them. Yeah. They've already established, Hey, this is a weird world. Get on board early on in the movie. And I, I think the reason why like she all of a sudden knows how to do that is if I remember correctly in that scene, she's getting surrounded. She has no real defense. And I think that was like, her answer for a fight or flight response. Like she's, she can't run away. There's nowhere to run away. So she's just got to buckle down and fight. And I think she just happens to throw the punch and boom, she can punch the spirits out of the zombie characters. And she's like, Oh, this'll do. (laughs) And she just starts beating the shit out of everybody. Yeah. It's like every origin story for the X-Men or it's like they get their powers because they needed them right there. Like, which makes sense. I, I think that makes sense. But and like you said, there was so much exposition. You just have to believe what's happening on the screen. You're just like, all right, well, now she knows how to do this. I mean, when she puked the ghosts up, I was like, <laughs> I was not expecting that either. But hey, whatever. That's what this movie's about. Right. You When when she first does it, she warns one of the other characters, like, you might want to leave the room because this isn't pretty. And you think she's going to, like, raise the corpse or something like that to where the corpse starts walking around and talking or or something to that effect. You really don't expect that she's about to, like, essentially vomit out a corpse and go into Do you know if that happens in the comics? That part I don't know. Like I said, I did did a little research into, like, how similar things were to the actual comics because, like I said, when I watched this movie, it really felt like it tried to remain really true to the comics, even though I knew – almost nothing about the comics at that point, but it felt because they had these like converging storylines and just the way it was shot. Like I really, it made me think like, this is more like the comics and that's why there's so much to it. And the world, the world felt deeper than the Ron Perlman ones, which, which is not a slight against Guillermo del Toro at all. Cause he was not trying to accomplish that. Like he was just trying to tell the story about Hellboy and the end of this, you know, the apocalyptic end of this story. He wasn't trying to build a deeper world, which is fine. Uh, But in this movie, they were definitely trying to build a deeper world. And so as I was watching it, I was like, I want to get into the comics. And actually like, I I looked into what I start needed reading to read the comics. But in the meantime, I looked into the similarities of what the comics and the movie, this movie had in common to only to find out that they like weave certain storylines together. But certain scenes were directly ripped from the comics. So that's good because I, you know, I, I think their initiative was let's stick to the comics. The other one didn't do that. We can't recreate the other one. Let's make our own version. Let's stick to the comics and let's see what we can do. And I, I think they did a pretty good job with that. Granted, I don't know the comics. You'd have to 
really talk to people who do. We, we work with a guy that knows the comics pretty well. And he also says, yes, they did stick to the comics pretty well. Um, but can we talk about my favorite moment of the film, which you didn't really get to see in the first Hellboy with Guillermo del Toro and Ralph Perlman, is when he becomes, Hellboy becomes this king of hell. So in the original with, hell, with uh, Ron Perlman, he grows the horns out and uh, he takes his, his coat off. And that's pretty much all there really is. It's just him with these big ass horns. And then he decides, no, I'm not going to be the king of hell. And he snaps the horns off. Well, in this version, we get to see way more of what would happen if he was the king of hell. I, I'm not sure if it's like a premonition that happens. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in this version, we get to see Ron Perlman be the king of hell. And also the fire crown on top of his head. Really nice touch. I really thought that made it so much cooler. And plus, he's got a big ass sword, which we'll talk about that, too, because that, like, that whole part I was confused about. <laughs> so he so but let me backtrack a bit before we get there, I guess. So we talked earlier in the movie in, about the movie, how there's Merlin and Excalibur in this storyline. And I was like, all right, I don't know what what they're going to do with this. But apparently the sword is the only thing that can kill the Blood Queen. And that's T like they do that in the beginning of the movie, then the sword gets locked away and whatever. But then they bring it back. And there's like a premonition where the Blood Queen is telling Hellboy, like, here's all the things we can accomplish together, instead of like just telling him, as filmmakers, they show us. And I thought that scene was great. He's flying around on this big, what it like fire dragon thing i mean i to, uh, for fear of mentioning dark souls twice in a podcast but it looks like <laughs> like a, a, a boss in dark souls like a big yeah fire like corpse dragon and but like a hundred percent the premonition that he gets when he touches excalibur not only was like a tease to what we could see in a sequel that's not going to happen yeah but was visually one of the best shots in the movie. And I think you even see it in the trailer. Yeah. Plus, plus the way they did that premonition scene was just, so he's, he's flying around, right. And then he jumps off this thing and he hits the ground and he's got, he's got his horns. He's got his flaming crown. He's pissed off. And he's got this big old flaming sword. That's Excalibur. And he just starts mowing down people and just, beating like nothing can touch this guy and i was like god damn this is such a good scene like i almost kind of want him to do it like i kind of want him to to be the bad guy i want to see this dude beat people's ass uh but then i can't remember like it snaps back to reality or something and he's holding the sword and he's you know he's got the crown and he decides no i'm not going to do this after speaking to his weird ghost father who got thrown up but i was like man that was such a good scene like even if the rest of this movie kind of takes a shit. That scene right there, I'm still going to love. So it's actually, he gets the chance to take Excalibur twice. That's right. It's the first time that he sees Merlin tries to convince him to take Excalibur to defeat the Blood Queen because it's the only thing that can kill her in the first part of the movie. And so he, he goes to grab Excalibur because he wants to defeat the Blood Queen like he wants to be the hero and he sees that as soon as he grabs Excalibur and pulls the sword from the stone, he 
will have the power to essentially bring about the end of the earth. So he refuses to take it. And then maybe 10, 15 minutes later, he's pulling the actual Excalibur from Arthur's, Arthur's burial place to turn into this like full born, you know, horns crown. And, and that's what you want to see in a Hellboy movie. Like you do get a glimpse of that in the Ron Perlman when he sticks his hand into the stone and activates the Cthulhu God up in the, up in space. But in the, this version, you get to see him not only pull this flaming sword from a stone, which you don't get, but he like r- essentially rises from underneath the earth because he steps out of Arthur's grave as the king of hell. And you're right, the flame and the crown was, uh, I want to say an upgrade from the Ron Perlman version because in the Ron Perlman version, it's like he has this flame on his head and there's a silhouette of a crown inside of it. But in this one, the flames are actually in the shape of a crown, which... It's like floating between his horns too, which is kind of cool. Yeah, And, and so this movie really... I want to I, I want to talk to like somebody who is just like heart and soul into the comics and hear their thoughts on this movie because I really think that if you were reading these when they were coming out and you just like love the story and this is your favorite comic then you would like be in love with this movie because it really was a love letter to the comics despite the behind the scenes push and pull between director and cinematographer besides the like rush story, because you're trying to fit three storylines into it besides everything that people hated about this movie. It felt like an homage to the very little that I know about the comics. And I learned more about the comics because I saw this movie I mean, if there's anybody out there who really loves the Hellboy comics and listens to our podcast, wide margins, I know. Uh, <laughs> please l- let us know how you feel about this movie. If you hate it, by all means. If you hate our opinion about it, by all means. Brad, do you, do you have anything else you want to say about Hellboy 2019? I don't want to say I hated it because if, if I had to give this a rating – not Rotten Tomatoes, because I think Rotten Tomatoes is garbage and they're all a bunch of pricks. But <laughs> watch, now they're going to see this podcast and whenever I come out with a movie, they're going to be like, he said we're a prick, vote him down. <laughs> but uh, I mean, out of a one to 10 scale, I, I'd probably give this about a seven, may, maybe an eight, just because I really loved that scene where he's beating the shit out of everybody as the King of Hell. I mean, that's my favorite scene. That's what I, I almost feel cheated watching the Ron Perlman version because I really wanted to see that. And then, you know, you get a little bit of it and then it's gone. You're like, oh, all right, well, okay. It doesn't really fit the tone of this piece. But then watching the 2019 version, you're just like, God, what a badass. This dude really would bring the end of the world. I kind of answered the question at the end. It's like, well, who brings the end of the world? Well, it's fucking him. He's got, a, he's big and jacked and he's got a big ass flaming sword and he rides a dragon and nothing can touch this guy. So maybe it's a good fact that he, you know, didn't bring the end of the world. He found his humanity, which in this movie, they really played a lot of like, you may be this big demon king from hell, but you're human. You were raised as a human. You fought for us and we fought for you. I would 100% agree with you in the, the idea that 
this movie really played to the idea that was part of the comics that Hellboy is part human because his mother is a descendant of King Arthur's Morgan, who was the witch, uh, who was part of King Arthur's circle. And, and his mother was a descendant of that, which made Hellboy part human. And he actually even lists off, he's like, oh, great. So I'm demon spawn and a Nazi, which is like he's learning about <laughs> through this movie as we're learning about him. So he learns that he's not only demon spawn, was raised by Nazis, and is also human, and is like this key piece to the end of the world. The reason why Hellboy is even a comic book character in the first place is because somebody was like, what if we had one of them fighting on our side? And I think this movie speaks to that saying, you know, Hellboy is human and we, he looks human. He acts human. He's very flawed as if he was a human, was a human. And you know, is subject to the same, like even the very opening scene where we, he kills his best friend who we have no reason to care about other than the fact that Hellboy cares about him because he's his human buddy. It it establishes a lot of similarities between him and us without, well, no, I'm not going to say without trying because it actually tried very hard. There was a lot of emphasis on making this come to a head, but they did it. I think, I think the, this movie is not meant to be watched over and over again, which I did. You did. And we'll I kind of want to watch it again now, actually. Well, yeah, well, you know, I, I won't not watch it again just because it was bad. Like, but I won't watch it anytime soon. That's yeah. <laughs> Definitely a good pick. But yeah, I think, I think this is, this is one of the reasons why we, we do this is, is we look at mistakes we look at success and we capitalize. No, I'm just joking. Uh, we, we try and make sense of where this came from. And Hellboy was not perfect. And we've done some great movies on this show. You know, like, I mean, Skip Trace is a classic. You know, <laughs> the Disaster Artist is something that... Uh, that I, you know, I'll definitely enjoy watching, especially knowing that we did such a deep dive on the room, but this movie is one that, you know, I, I will definitely watch again. Just like I said, not anytime soon. Yeah. It might be a while before I watch it again, but I'll definitely give it another watch. Ron Perlman did a great job. And, but I, I think David Harbour did a better job portraying that character Granted, the story might not have been the greatest, but this movie was stacked up against a lot of odds. And I think what they came away with was probably better than what was in, what I was anticipating because I thought this might just be a load of shit because I've heard bad things from it. But when I watched it, I was like, you know what? That really was not that bad. I thought it was actually pretty decent. Not going to make my top five or my top ten, but I still did like it. And you know, that was exactly why I picked this movie is because it got such negative reviews. I'm, I'm glad we did it. So Brad, Fighting the system. <laughs> thank you for joining me for another episode. Please, if you have any questions, comments, and concerns, email us at absurdasylum at gmail.com. Twitter, absurdistasylum, at absurdistasylum. Fuck Facebook, but we're on there too. Say goodbye to the people, Brad. Goodbye, peoples. Goodbye, people. Goodbye, people.